Well, the primary is over, but uh, is it over? And what do all the results mean? Well, join us to dissect all that is our old friend and colleague, Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center of Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. So, Andy, my friend, thank you very much for being with us. Always good to chat with you, especially around this time of year. It's always fun to chat with you, and I know that you also get to deal with finals this time of year. So, you know, we get we get twice the enjoyment most people do. Oh, yeah, party in a bottle. I can hardly contain <laughs> myself. So, uh, so let's go ahead and start. Uh, first of all, your overall impression of uh, this year's primary. Uh, in terms of, like, the mechanics of it, things seem to have run pretty darn well throughout the state. You know, the usual handful of issues, but from a, an election administration standpoint, seems to have gone pretty well, which I think is always a good thing for people to hear and for us to keep in mind the vast majority of elections do go well. What might be most disappointing, though, is actually the really anemic turnout that we had just about everywhere in the state. That is more than a little bit problematic, I'd say. Uh, let's talk about the turnout before we actually get to the results. Uh, I want to say in Marion County was like 8%. Uh, I want to say up north in Whitley County was like 12%. I guess Hamilton County was a little bit better. Uh, but what do you attribute the anemic turnout to? It's a number of things. There's no silver bullet. That's the first thing. Everybody thinks there's one thing we can do that'll take care of all of this, and there really isn't. Uh, with one exception. The one thing that we know drives up turnout is having exciting races, but even that sometimes doesn't do it. So for me, I think it's a number of things. I think it's a lack of exciting races. That comes out of the fact that a lot of races are sort of predetermined in advance or they're uncontested races, really safe districts, those sorts of things. That drives down the excitement. That drives down the interest for people have. Beyond that, though, there's actually no incentive in some respects for candidates to drive turnout up. In other words, if I can, as a candidate, take a look at the voter file, see who regularly votes in the primary election, canvas those voters and find out that I can win if they are the only people who show up, then I really don't have much of a reason to go out and encourage additional people to vote. I think that's an additional part of the problem. And of course, one of the things people bring up all the time is the fact that you have to pick a party. You have to walk in and say, I want to vote in the Democratic primary. I want to vote in the Republican primary. There are people who don't want that on their permanent record. And so they they sort of say, forget it. I'm not going to do it. We should keep in mind that primary elections are a nominating process, so they should be party functions. But at the same time, the way we do our nominating here by keeping it so rigidly tied to party affiliation, that's certainly not exactly helping a larger turnout. So let me ask you, my friend, is it time maybe for uh, maybe to change our primary system? Because first of all, uh, I always been a firm believer if the taxpayers are footing the bill, the taxpayers should have a whole lot more say <laughs> when two private p political parties are picking their candidates. I prefer uh, either either go to like a county convention system and nominate your candidates or uh, go to an open primary system where it doesn't matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, the top two vote getters, they face each other in a runoff. You know, you you and a lot of people feel that way. I'm always amazed by the number of people I, when I point out to them, I say that the primary is a, a party function that you and I are paying for. People get shocked by that. That hasn't really dawned on them. So there's certainly a, a bit of education that we could be doing to help people understand exactly what's going on in that. And what you described there in terms of an open primary, top two candidates make it to the fall there are an awful lot of people who like that system because what you end up with then is a candidate who actually has a majority of the vote. When you look at a race with three, four, five people in it, somebody can win with, you know, 30 percent of the vote, sometimes even less than that. And that means that 70 percent of the people wanted someone else. That's certainly not uh, going to be bringing out uh, uh, the ability for someone to say, I have a mandate, although they will, because that's what you do after you win. 
maybe it is time to take a look at it. Uh, and going back to the convention, I'm somebody who's actually been involved in those conventions before. Uh, my dad helped run a couple of them. I've helped run a couple of them. They're, in some respects, they're great fun. You get people into a room, so more like uh, what you see in Iowa, you get people into a caucus situation. They're regular folks just talking with each other about candidates they like and they don't like. It's really very exciting. Our guests on the program today is our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, sort of doing a, a post-mortem primary analysis, uh, so to speak. Uh, Andy, uh, it's interesting you talk about uh, the you know not having a paral- not having a majority to win because I want to say uh, at the federal level uh, in the first district where Jennifer Ruth Green won, and down in the ninth district where in Houchin won, both tied themselves to Donald Trump, but neither got a clear majority uh, in those primaries. They got a plurality, but in Indiana, I guess that's all you need. It is all you need. And that kind of shocks people occasionally. You know, they think that there must be a majority. No, down in the ninth, uh, Houchin ended up with like 38 percent of the vote. And for a lot of people are going to say, well, that's wrong, that that person should not get to win. Keep in mind what she won was the nomination, not the office. But given the dynamics and the demographics of that district, she's probably going to win the race in the fall. A little less clear up in the first district uh, where Jennifer Ruth Green got, you know, 45 percent of the vote, still not a majority. Uh, That is one of the things that people look at and say that's problematic. That's why you see things like instant runoff or sort of the traditional runoff being proposed and used in other locations. And by the way, uh, what does that say about uh, the Trump effect here in the state of Indiana? The fact that uh, obviously uh, a majority of uh, voters voted for someone else in both those congressional races, but Trump still managed to get about Trump back candidate still managed to get about 40 percent of the vote uh, altogether. Yeah, if we go back to 2016, this should kind of sound familiar to people because in those primary, those early primary states, caucus states, he was pulling in 30 to 40 percent of the votes. He really did not get over 50 percent until the race really whittled down to just him, so to speak. Uh, And so this is uh, kind of par for the course. He is not somebody who usually has massive support unless he is the only person being discussed, in which case that's more a measure of the party than of him. Uh, my friend, what do you think about, uh, like I said, our congressional races, the fact that uh, whether it was Jim Banks, Jackie Walorski, you know, to a lesser degree, you know, Andre Carson, Greg Pence, Jim Baird, you know, they all just seem to just seem to sell through uh, to their party nominations. Does that, does that just bode well for incumbents or just not, not a whole lot of challengers, so to speak, on, on either the Democrat or Republican side of things? Yeah, no, no, the, the the incumbency advantage is uh, part is nonpartisan. If you are the incumbent, you have an advantage, flat out. End of story. No need to discuss anything else. We usually are talking about individuals who are sitting on six figures or more of campaign finance or campaign money available to them. Somebody who wants to challenge a candidate or an incumbent has to go out and be able to raise that much money and more. They're questioning the, the sort of the logic of the party when they're doing it. So they're often viewed as an outsider. Uh, they, they don't necessarily get access to the same party resources that the incumbents do because the incumbent party wants to hold on to the seat. There are just a whole lot of things that say that incumbents, uh, you start with the assumption they're going to win and they're going to win big. If you look historically, uh, it is not uncommon for us to see incumbents winning 80 percent of the races in which they are running there are some exceptions. Uh, the Senate has a slightly lower uh, incumbent uh, success rate than the House does, but that's to be ex- expected because states have a more diverse voting population than congressional districts do. 
but being an incumbent is such an advantage. It is, it is, this is why we see people run, you know, in, in the ninth, there's a reason everybody ran down in the ninth for the Republican nomination. They believe once you get the nomination, you will face minimal challenge from inside the party and it's a relatively safe seat. So it's yours until you decide to give it up. Our guest on the program today is our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics, Purdue University, Fort Wayne, doing a post-mortem analysis uh, of the primary of what happened uh, this week here in the state of Indiana. Uh, Andy, I want to take a take a uh, switch a little bit and go toward the state level. Uh, lots of, uh, to say, 28 primary challenges altogether. And on the Republican side, a lot of challenges uh, to the far right of uh, people like Tim Wesco, uh, Matt Lehman. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, what happened on Tuesday with respect to the legislature? I think that it's possible for uh, the far right part of the party and the more moderate part of the party to say they won. I think they both can point to evidence that say, see, we did all right. Uh, I, I don't think there's a uniform answer to that question. And I say that in part because while folks like Lehman managed to survive quite well, you can look at someone like Dan Leonard who did not. Uh, and you can at the same time look at Jacob and Nisley who did not manage to win their primaries. And you can find other individuals, say uh, Tyler Johnson up this way for a state Senate seat. He won his. So you can find examples of the more conservative candidate winning and examples of the more moderate candidate winning. I think part of what this tells us is that the way you campaign still matters. And that's I, I love hearing that as a political scientist that, you know what, go out and talk to voters, go out and meet with them. I think an argument can be made down in the ninth to go back to the federal level for a moment. Houchin had to raise or did raise a lot of that money from individual donors, whereas Stu Barnes Israel and Mike Sobrell, you know, they were able to give their own money to the campaign. She had to go out and talk to people. Uh, up this way, Dan Leonard lost to Larissa Sweet in part because I think Larissa Sweet did a much better job of, of her ground game. Leonard had television commercials. She had boots on the ground. Uh, Tyler Johnson and Ron Turpin, Denny Warman in the state Senate seat up this way. Johnson and Turpin both ran commercials, but Tyler uh, Johnson had an incredibly active uh, ground game going. So, you know, go out and meet the voters, whether that's you or people speaking on your behalf. That still matters. And, and I think that we can't ignore the role of the actual campaign when we're doing these sort of postmortems. And I want to uh, split with you just a little bit, my friend, on the on the on the, the far right and the, and the moderate, the more establishment wing of Republicans claiming victory, uh, because if you think about it, uh, John Jacobs and Kurt nicely lost, but like you said, you know Dan Leonard uh, lost his uh, lost his run. Uh, Dr. Johnson uh, won his thing, uh, and also uh, I want to say uh, a woman uh, in the district uh, near Brownsburg, she won as well. But at the end of the day, I guess you could say you know two out, two in, one up. So maybe got maybe got a net of one of the of the more far right candidates at the end of the day. Yeah, it, well, I, I I really think that um, you can make an argument for. Let me rephrase that. Somebody who wants to argue that it was a good day for far-right uh, candidates can point to them. Someone who wants to make the argument for more moderate can point to some victories. I don't think either of them should be allowed to declare full victory. Uh, what about your thoughts on Jacob and Nicely? Because those were two incumbents that were uh, – Kurt Dyson was drawn into a district uh, with Craig Snow. Craig Snow uh, cleaned Nicely's clock, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting because I figured Nicely would do a little bit better than he did. And John Jacobs uh, got beat down here uh, in the Annapolis area, too, like almost by like a 65-35 margin. Yeah, I'm with you. I thought that Nicely had a better chance or should have done better. Uh, and I thought that in part because he's not been a traditional candidate. He's done a lot of 
grassroots type stuff, doesn't necessarily speak to the media a lot. He speaks through social media. He does some of those things that are uh, you can do effectively these days. But when you look at the campaign Snow ran, it was it was an effective campaign. And man, did he have the resources to run it? I mean, the, the financial the disparity there is astounding between the two of them. But like you, I was kind of surprised by that big a victory. I think part of what that says, though, is be careful about being labeled too much as a single issue candidate. And I think I mean, that's a little unfair for Knightley. It's not unfair for Jacobs to say that they were one issue candidates. Uh, I do. I personally think that uh, Jacobs may find himself in a better position now as being outside the legislature uh, because he knows how it works. He's intimately aware of what happens in the caucus room and those sorts of things. But now he can really just go full-throated for the issue that is most important to him, and he doesn't have to worry about reading all those other bills. He may find himself in a better position now as an advocate than, than his ability to perform as an insider. And it's also interesting, too, because I want to say Julie McGuire, uh, when she ran, she had a half a million dollars uh, in the bank. I was like, wow, that's interesting for a statehouse race. Yeah, well, you know how it is. There are a couple. There are a couple of people who end up, or a couple of races every year that end up in the six figures, and we all think, "Holy cow, that's a lot of money!" And you're going to have to spend it again in two years. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the party and campaigns recognizing the resources necessary to win those hotly contested areas. What might become slightly more shocking to people is the amount of money that gets spent in those races when you're talking about just sort of a handful of votes getting cast. I mean, that that may be the thing that shocks people the most. Uh, if we just go take a look at, at uh, the race with uh, uh, McGuire and Jacob, you know, we're talking about 20, uh, not even 4,000 votes cast. And, and yet, you know, they're, they're going out and raising that kind of money. Andy Downs with us for a few more minutes on the program today. Andy is with the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. Uh, Andy, uh, even though <clears throat> excuse me, most of the primary is done, there's still uh, one race in particular uh, that it, that hasn't necessarily been called yet because I know folks are still out there looking for, for votes and casting and looking at provisional ballots. That is House District 32, which is mostly Carmel. Uh, that was Fred Glenn, uh, Susie Jaworski, and another candidate. And right now, the last one I counted this morning, there was only like a 12-vote difference uh, between Fred Glenn and Susie Jaworski. What do you think is going going to happen there, if anything? Well, I, I think it's safe to say there's going to be a recount there. Uh, in, in spite of the fact that we have really far better equipment today that, that counts very accurately, occasionally there are problems with it, the number of votes by which somebody has lost continues to shrink uh, in terms of the likelihood of being over, able to overturn it in a recount. But boy, 12 votes out of just between, you know, those two candidates, we're not we're not talking huge numbers of votes at that point. But, you know, we're still talking maybe three thirty five hundred votes between the two of them. Twelve votes could be found there. Uh, and so that, in my opinion, that's not somebody saying they think the election is corrupt, et cetera. That's just somebody saying, hey, let's go back and look at the paper again and see what it shows. I think that's a very reasonable thing to happen. Uh, and it'll be very nice to see a recount that is uh, civil with, you know, good discussion about what should count and shouldn't count as a, a vote and a valid mark on a ballot. Uh, and I think that's what we're looking forward to in that district. And I also think it's important to remind people that I want, I'll say Indiana does not have an automatic recount. The candidates have to request it and they have to pay for it. That's right. They do. And that, you know, the pay for it part. On the one hand, there are candidates who maybe don't have the kind of support they're looking for from the party, or maybe the party just isn't in that good a position. So for them, those dollars become difficult to go out and raise and actually ask for the recount. 
But uh, when it really comes right down to it, even a minority party that's looking in the general election at a close race, they'll go out and find the money. It's in a primary situation like this where the party's going to say, we don't we don't want any of this fight. You know, you you go find the money to do it because they, of course, just want to back the person who won. Uh, it's a different dynamic than the general election. But still, you're right. There's no there's no automatic. And it does. You've got to put the money down to do it. Uh, Andy, got just a couple minutes left here. I want to get your thoughts on the other big news item of the week and how you think it might impact the Indiana General Assembly. Uh, that was the 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 leaked uh, opinion, draft opinion uh, of the abortion issue by the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Alito wrote it. Uh, you got lots of folks uh, uh, up in arms saying, "Hey, this is a good thing. It's a bad thing." What do you think the impact of this is going to be in the Indiana General Assembly? Well, we knew that. Uh, if the decision was to overturn Roe, we already knew that there was going to be pressure on the governor to call a special session. Now that pressure is getting ramped up a little bit sooner rather than later. So I think that's something for us to watch in the in the coming weeks. The governor, of course, is a lame duck. So in some respects, he doesn't have to worry about what the legislature wants. Uh, but at the same time, if he has aspirations for other elected office, he's got to be thinking about those things. It certainly will be a, an issue discussed extensively this fall, but given the number of safe seats that exist in Indiana, I don't see this being the thing that causes you know, a flip in control of either chamber to the Democrats. It could result in maybe, maybe uh, Democrats getting out of the super minority, uh, but that's in part just sort of the nature of Indiana and the districts we're talking about. But this will be the sort of thing that gets discussed extensively Extensively between now and I'll even say the end of November, not just the beginning of November, but the end of November. All right. Well, our guest on the program today has been our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, doing a post-primary postmortem. Try saying that five times real fast. Andy, my friend, as always, thank you very much for being with us. Always good to talk to you, sir. It's my pleasure. Now get back to grading those papers. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.